Good morning. Good. We are on. Hello. Hello. Uh, it is very good to be with you this morning. Uh, I know very few of you, which is wonderful. Uh, my name is Richard. Um, I, I, I normally um, am with Kingfisher Church in Little Paxton. I'm one of the leaders there. Um, but it's my great privilege to come and join you this morning. And um, we've been praying for you for a long time. We continue to pray for you. Um, and it's, it's just great to be here. Great to see that Christchurch Camborne is up and happening. Uh, we're going to be looking at God's words together. Um, we're going to look at that chapter that was read for us from Mark chapter 10. Let me pray as we come to consider God's word. Our great God Almighty, we have reminded ourselves already in song that you're a great father, that you have a great son who is our great high priest. And we ask now that by your great spirit you will open up your word to us, You'll give us ears which are ready to hear and hearts that are ready to respond to what you say to us. Amen. It would be great if you had a Bible open at Mark chapter 10. Uh, I will do that and that would be great for me as well. Good. Uh, let's begin with a story. Um, it's probably not true. Um, I heard it somewhere. I can't remember where. I think I read it, but um, it's a good story anyway. It's about a couple of sailors a long time ago. A couple of sailors, their ship came to shore, and they rushed off the ship straight into the nearest pub. Uh, and they spent some time there. Um, and many hours later, they stumbled out. It was dark. They were worse for wear, and they had no idea where they were or how to get back to their ship. Uh, and they were trying to work out what to do. And it just happened that the admiral of the fleet was passing by. And so they shouted at him and said, Oi, tell us where we are. The admiral was enraged at this subordination. So he turned to them, faced up, showed them his uniform, and he demanded, Do you know who I am? And one of the sailors turned to the other and said, We thought we were in trouble. We don't know where we are, but this guy doesn't even know who he is. <laughs> Uh, why do I tell that untrue story? Um, the reason is um, that when it comes to approaching Jesus, uh, many people can be very much like those sailors. Uh, when it comes to approaching Jesus, our attitude can be all wrong. Uh, it can be wrong because we don't really know who we're talking to. It can be wrong because we're not even sure of who we are. Now let me ask you, as we just begin to consider this passage this morning, what is your attitude as you come to Jesus. Uh, I can give you a test for that, actually. Um, to, to kind of work out what's going on in your heart, ask yourself, what is your attitude right now as we come to consider his word in the Bible? Now, what's going on? Now, are you coming maybe to weigh it up, to see if you like it, to see if Jesus is going to agree with you? Or maybe you're, um, we had a passage on divorce, that's what we're looking at today. Maybe you're hoping for some ammunition to help you in arguments. Or maybe, maybe you're just already thinking about something else. Maybe your mind has already wandered. You knew it would happen at some point, and it's already happened. Because for you, what is most important happens elsewhere. Maybe. The, the, the thing is, as we 
approach Jesus as we approach him in his word, as we gather with his people, as we approach him in prayer, as we seek to live the whole of life before him, uh, or, or even if you've not decided to follow Jesus. Um, you happen to find yourself, though, in church this morning. Uh, as we approach Jesus, there are two questions which are very simple but which matter immensely. The questions are, do you know who he is and do you know who you are? Do you know who he is and do you know who you are? We're looking at Mark chapter 10 verses 1 to 16. This passage is a passage that begins and ends with people coming to Jesus. Uh, And yet the situations couldn't be more different. Uh, It begins with Pharisees coming to Jesus and it ends with children. Uh, In verse 1, Mark sets the scene. Uh, He's told that Jesus arrives in the region of Judea and across the Jordan and the crowds come to him and he teaches them. Now, uh, by this point in Mark's gospel, this is a very typical scene. Um, Jesus is now established as a teacher of the crowds. It is again that the crowds come. He teaches as his custom. We're very comfortable. The scene is set. And then in verse 2, we have some familiar and sinister characters walking onto the stage. Uh, In verse 2, the comfortableness of the type scene is ruffled, disrupted. In Mark's gospel, the Pharisees are always against Jesus. They have a very anti-Jesus agenda began way back in chapter 3. In chapter 3, Jesus had an interaction with the Pharisees and he showed that he just might threaten to overturn their self-interested, self-promoting, self-protecting form of religion. And so we're told in chapter 3 and verse 6, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That's the Pharisees. And the Pharisees walk on scene. The, the, The Pharisees come with a question for Jesus. And Mark tells us straight away it's not an innocent or a genuine question. They're coming to test him. They're coming to trap him. Their question is maliciously intended. Now, their question is a bit like the schoolboy who says to another, does your mother know that you're stupid? Now, if you say yes, then you're admitting that you're stupid and everyone laughs at you. If you say no, then you're saying you're admitting that you're stupid, just your mum doesn't know, so everyone laughs at you. It's a trap, a malicious question. It's the Pharisee's question here. It's a trap. They want to catch Jesus out. Is it lawful, they say? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It's a clever question. In the first century at this time, there was was a lot of controversy about divorce. Uh, There were different divisive schools of thought about it. So what the Pharisees do, they pick up this contemporary and controversial issue they throw it at Jesus and they do it publicly all the crowds are there listening maybe they expect Jesus's answer to divide his support that reminds me a little bit of something that happens a bit later in Acts when the apostle Paul is being attacked by the Jewish leaders uh, they're united against him they're baying for his blood and so he says I it's because I've been arrested because I believe in the resurrection of the dead And he said it because it was a controversial issue among his attackers. And as soon as he said it, they stopped attacking him and started arguing with each other. It divided them. The Pharisees maybe here are trying to get Jesus to take sides in this controversy, trying to divide his supporters, divide these great crowds who come to him. Maybe their question has a little bit more bite. Jesus has just arrived in this region of Judea and across the Jordan. Uh, it seems that this is the area which is under, is under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. 
Uh, and we've heard about Herod Antipas already in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 6. Uh, in Mark chapter 6, uh, Antipas ordered the execution of John the Baptist. Why did he do that? Because John the Baptist spoke out against his immoral marriage and about Herodias, his brother's wife, who he'd taken as his own wife. And the result of that was that John lost his head. Maybe the Pharisees hoped that Jesus would suffer the same fate. That their question is to trap, it's malicious. And yet their question, their question exposes what they think about marriage. In verse 4, they follow up with their proof text. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now they refer to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And let me read for you the passage that they're referring to. The beginning of Deuteronomy 24 says this. It says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of, a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies... Then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. That's what it says in Deuteronomy. That's what Moses wrote. Maybe helpful just to notice a couple of things about what Moses wrote. First of all, he writes assuming divorce is happening doesn't particularly comment either way on it. He just assumes that that happens. He writes about a very particular situation, a marriage where, where the woman is divorced and then she marries someone else and then that marriage ends through death or divorce and then whether she can return to her first husband or not. Now, and actually, if you read the section of Deuteronomy, it might surprise you to hear this, but the concern in the section of Deuteronomy is to protect the rights of women in a society where they were often treated like property. It's to protect the woman's right to remarry. She can't just be sent away. There needs to be a certificate of divorce. Uh, and also to, to ensure that a wife isn't passed around like a trophy from husband to husband and back again, willy-nilly. That oughtn't to happen. Women ought to be treated with respect. However, this is the text which shapes the Pharisees' attitude to marriage. And, and as they pull on this text and they ask their question, what they're saying, what they're assuming, is that divorce is fine. There's no problem with divorce. You write a certificate of divorce and you move on. For them, marriage is a non-permanent contract of convenience. It doesn't seem to have occurred to them that they might be missing something there. So the Pharisees, they bring their malicious question. They want to trap Jesus. They ask him about divorce and Jesus answers. And as Jesus answers, he shows again that if you try to trap Jesus, you are likely to get entangled in your own snare. They ask a question, Jesus responds with a question. What did Moses command you? A question that probes them, that searches them. What did Moses say? Moses wrote um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, five books of the Bible, a huge section of the Old Testament. What does Moses say about this subject? Well, the Pharisees jump onto their proof text, this particular protection which recognises the reality of divorce. But Jesus, in verses 5 to 9, offers a different perspective from Moses. Now, Jesus shows that when we talk about divorce, really we can only talk about divorce in the context of what the Bible says about marriage. 
Uh, So what Jesus does is he takes them and he takes us right back to the beginning, to the opening chapters of the Bible. Uh, He speaks about God's creation intention for marriage. He speaks about uh, the master's plan for marriage. And what does he say? He says, right at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That's the beginning of marriage. God created people, uh, designed people to complement one another in marriage, male and female. And then he says a man will leave his father and mother. Uh, A set of family dependencies of a child depending on his parents will be replaced by a new set of dependencies. And he'll be united to his wife. He will be faithfully devoted and committed to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It's a clincher. For Jesus, it's the clincher, isn't it? He repeats it. He highlights this. If you want to summarise marriage from Jesus' perspective, it is two becoming one. So Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus spells out what God's intention for marriage is. A permanent, indivisible bond. It's not a, a mere contract of convenience. It is a new state of being. Two are now one. Then in verses 10 to 12, in private, the disciples asked Jesus about this. And he, I guess, clarifies the necessary implication of what he said for divorce. He says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now his point here is that if the Pharisees, or if anybody else, if the Pharisees think that simply having a certificate of divorce will end that one flesh union that has been established by God, then they are a million miles away from understanding what marriage is. If somebody just sends his wife away and marries another, he is committing adultery. The same is true for a woman who divorces her husband. Jesus' answer to this question wouldn't have divided the crowd. Now, Jesus wasn't taking sides on an argument here. And what Jesus says here would have stunned those who heard it. Maybe it stuns us as we hear it today. Now, Jesus shows the Bible has a very high view of marriage. It has a, a much higher view of marriage than what is held in our society. A much higher view of marriage, perhaps, than we have of our own marriages. And yet, whilst this passage speaks about marriage, there is more that is going on here. You see, that the Pharisees, they bring their malicious question to Jesus. They try to trap him with their question. They ask about divorce. But as they ask, they reveal their disregard for marriage. And Jesus doesn't miss it. Jesus cuts right to the chase, right at the start. He puts his finger on the defining issue in this encounter. Verse 5, he says, it was because your hearts were hard. Now, divorce happens. Sadly, it happens. It's painful. It's hard. Uh, Marriages struggle. Marriages fail. It was the reality then. It's the reality today. And the Pharisees know that. So so they try to legislate for it and organise it. But they miss the root of the problem. No, they're arguing about divorce, trying to drag Jesus into their arguments, but they miss the reality that divorce and the provisions for divorce in Deuteronomy is evidence of a fundamental problem in their hearts. They have hard hearts. And these hard hearts, it's not just about being a bit stubborn. This is about a deep-rooted brokenness at the centre of their lives. 
Now, other than this conversation in the Bible, there's one other passage that speaks about a certificate of divorce and hardness of heart. Just one other place. It comes in the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 3. A passage where the Lord speaks about his relationship with his people, how his relationship with his people is a broken relationship. He says in Jeremiah 3 verse 8, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. That is an immensely awful statement. Now, God's relationship with his people is a marriage. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, our understanding of marriage can get a bit jaded. It can get chipped away at by life's experiences and what happens in society. Our understanding of marriage can get jaded, but not so for God. God is the originator and the designer of marriage. No, for God, marriage is always that mysterious commitment of exclusive and faithful devotion where two become one. It's always a union, a relationship of committed love. And marriage is how God chooses to relate to his people. Marriage is the the image that God has created and planted into human society to explain and illustrate his relationship with his people. But in Jeremiah, he says that relationship is ruptured. That relationship is torn apart because his people, because Israel are faithless. And they've committed adulteries. They keep going after other gods. They've rebelled. They've rejected the Lord. And so their marriage bond is wrecked. And the Lord sends them away with a certificate of divorce. It just shows the insanity of sin. People pursue false gods. People live without any regard for their maker. People use and abuse others. People fail to love, fail to live. And, and, and our whole society and our lives ache with, ache with the outcomes of broken relationships. And, and sometimes people pretend it's okay and I see this and it, it's, it's, it's awful. You see people with, with their relationships crumbling around them but they put this veneer of happiness and everything's okay. Always look on the bright side. But there's a sea of sadness that rages underneath. And and even worse, that when people are rebelling against God, when people set their life against God, they load themselves with a guilt that must and will be punished. And we've got to be clear, it's not just talking about ancient Israel, is it? This pattern of rebellion against God is ingrained in, in the fabric of every human heart. It's certainly in mine, and I suggest that it's in yours. And in Jeremiah, he goes on to say that this sin, this spiritual adultery that has caused this marriage to fail, has come by hardness of heart. And Jesus takes that and levels that accusation at the Pharisees. They take divorce so lightly because they take their relationship with God so lightly. You see, this problem, the problem of divorce that the Pharisees want to speak about, is built on the deeper problem of their hard hearts built upon the problem of their spiritual adultery against God. And, and actually, this, this tragedy of this ultimate marriage that is broken, it gets even worse, because since these Pharisees adopt such a low view of marriage, since they disregard marriage, they have lost the picture that God has given that might offer them any hope. A few months ago, early on a Sunday morning, I had a text message saying, pray for your cousin Rachel, she's lost on a mountain. And the story unfolded later, 
that Rachel and her boyfriend did um, set out to climb a mountain. It was a lovely bright day. They had a quick look at the map, then they, disregard, they disregarded it. They didn't think they needed it. Up the mountain they went. When they got to the top of the mountain, the rain came down, the weather came down, the clouds set, and they got lost. They came down the wrong way. Um, they, they weren't equipped for it at all. They ended up spending the night on the mountain. Now, fortunately, they were found. They were cold and wet, but they were safe. But they disregarded the map, and without the map, they had no hope of finding the way. And that's what the Pharisees have done. The Pharisees have disregarded marriage. They've turned it into a contract of convenience. They've disregarded the relationship that's intended to display God's relationship with his people. And so whilst they come prattling on about divorce, they are doing so as they are estranged from God themselves, dead in their sins, and they are hard-hearted. And if you take marriage lightly, you lose the picture of grace that offers hope. Now, the message of Jeremiah 3 is a message of the Lord appealing to his bride to return. He says, come back, repent and be saved. Come back to me. The warning is that if they don't change their hard hearts, then the anger of God will burn against them because of their sin. But if they return, he's waiting for them. Now, that the Lord is waiting for his people. There is grace on offer. There is salvation available. There is hope. God will be their husband once more. In marriage, the, the mysterious, permanent marriage union, which even the best human marriages only offer a shadow of, it shows the constant love of God for his people. And yet if we disregard marriage, if we throw marriage away, if we change it, if we lose it, if we treat it lightly, then we lose the power of God's appeal to come to life in his love to come to life in union with him. If we disregard marriage, we tear up the picture. This passage that we're looking at this morning begins and ends with people coming to, coming to Jesus. In the first part, it's the Pharisees. They bring their malicious question. They try to trap Jesus. They ask about divorce. But all they achieve is to reveal they have hard hearts. They are estranged from God. They are lost. How do you come to Jesus? Now, what kind of questions do you ask? What, does your, what do your questions reveal about your attitude? Is there a genuine seeking? Or does your attitude actually only serve to reveal your estrangement from God? The first part, the Pharisees come. But in the second part, the children are those who come. The children are brought to Jesus. It's very abrupt, isn't it, between verse 12 and verse 13? Very typical of Marky. We suddenly find ourselves in a very different situation. The scene is, is fairly benign, really. Some people, we don't know who they are, try to bring their children to Jesus for him to bless them. The disciples obstruct access. The disciples are just being first century Jews, really. They lived in a society that didn't regard children with the kind of sentimentality that we do today. Children were a drain on resources until they could grow up and provide and contribute. It's no surprise they didn't want Jesus to be bothered by these children. It is a surprise that Jesus is so indignant, though. Jesus leaps to the defense of the children. He says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, 
Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You see, his point isn't so much about the children. His point is to illustrate something for his disciples. He wants the disciples to think about these children. What, what are these children bringing to Jesus? They are small They are powerless, they are overlooked, they're unimportant, they've got no status, no rights, no position, no claim. These children come as a picture of need, pure neediness. No, they don't even come themselves, they are brought. And Jesus says, look at that, that is how you receive the kingdom of God. No, in fact, he says, that is the only way to receive the kingdom of God. The only way to come, as these children do, into the embrace and blessing of Jesus, the only way into the embrace and blessing of Jesus is to come as a child, to come solely on the basis of your need. It stands in utter contrast to the Pharisees. They come oblivious to their need. They come to trap, to control, to destroy. Our passage begins and ends with people coming to Jesus, the Pharisees and the children, the self-sufficient and the needy. And, and really these two groups are just a foil, caricatures. Because in the middle stand the disciples. Now we see the disciples, they, they ask Jesus some more about divorce in the house. Then they obstruct the children. The, the, the disciples are ambiguous in this passage. They stand in between these two contrasting ways to approach Jesus. Where do, where do they fit in all of this? Now, which way do the, the, are they leaning? Which way do they go? How will they come to Jesus? Do they know who he is? Do they know who they are? Do, do they know of their need? Or are they ignorant of their hard hearts? Do they come to control or do they come to depend? Do they come to destroy or do they come to receive blessing? Do they know their need or are they ignorant of their hard-heartedness? It's the same challenge that comes to us this morning. Now, the pattern of hard-heartedness, it courses through our lives. There's there's an insipid rebellion that wrecks relationships. We have built within us a self-exalting wickedness. Now, we can coat it and hide it with social respectability, but the bottom line is we need our hearts to be changed. That's how fundamental it gets. Our, Our great need is what goes on in our hearts. It's a need that only Jesus can meet. And if we don't realise that, then we plough on headfirst into destruction. And so how do we approach Jesus? Now as we come to him in his word, and as we gather with his people, as we come to him in prayer, as we seek to live life before him, or, or, or as we come to him unsure, uncommitted, still asking questions, now, as we come, the most key questions are, do we know who he is and do we know who we are? Do we come like Pharisees or like children? Two ends of the spectrum, sitting in the middle, which way do we go? Do we recognise our need? Do we recognise that he is the only one who can meet it? Now, how do we do that? Now, just as we draw this part to a close, let me suggest um, three things that might just help us to come to Jesus more like children and less like Pharisees. 
That is, coming on the basis of our need rather than pursuing our own self-exalting agendas. Uh, the, the first thing which strikes me uh, that will help us is that we come confessing. Now, the Bible sets before us a pattern of confessing our sins regularly. Because as we confess our sins, what is it if it's not a declaration of our need? Uh, we come confessing when we say, I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. And when we confess, we come as children. Do you regularly confess your sin? Uh, it's a practice that reminds us who we are. So, so we confess and then we rehearse. We rehearse the gospel because as we confess our sin, it's followed by God's words of grace. And words like those in Romans 8.1 which say, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or like Colossians 1 which say, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Or, or in the first chapter of 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We rehearse the gospel. We go over it again and again. We remind ourselves of what God has done for us in Christ, which reminds us not only that we are needy, but that our need has been fully met in our great Saviour, the one who longs to embrace and bless us as he does these children. So we confess, we rehearse, and then we gather and we've got to have other Christians around us to help us with this. So blinkered and blind and we, we have our own little things that we get stuck in and we don't even realise it. We, we, need, we need like Jesus asking these Pharisees these questions that probe and that open up our heart so that we can see what's going on. We need Christians around us who will remind us who we are. Who will keep reminding us that we are sinners. That we have a great need but that in Christ we have a great saviour. So we confess we rehearse and we gather because we want to come as children only on the basis of our need to our great saviour who will adequately and sufficiently provide every need that we have. Now let's pray, shall we? Our God in heaven, I pray that your word will open up our hearts Lord, we maybe have many questions that we would like to ask you, ask one another, and yet I pray that your spirit will show us what's going on inside us. Lord, where we are acting like Pharisees as we come to Jesus, wanting to control and manipulate and pursue our own agenda and fail to recognise our own need, please will you show us that. Please open our eyes that we may see that we are greatly in need because our hearts are heart, but that in the Lord Jesus we have a great saviour who will adequately provide all of our needs, give us new hearts, and lead us into life. Amen. Uh, I think at this point, um, there's an opportunity for us to see if there's any questions um, that you might have. Um, I was going to give you a couple of minutes, uh, maybe to sit and think on your own, or to turn to people around you, just to, just to try and process what you've heard, um, and then if there's something you'd like to ask, then I'll um, notify you in a minute. I'm going to go and grab a little bit of water. Okay, uh, it's, it's good that you're talking. You might want to continue those conversations um, in a moment. Um, but if you want to make any of them public, um, uh, anything you'd like to ask? Yeah, good point.
Go on, Ben. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, do people hear that question? I'll repeat it. Okay, so, so the question is, um, understand, like, uh, understanding the hardness of our own hearts is very hard. Uh, to do that in a community is even harder to try and talk about each other's sin. Uh, it's very difficult. How as a church community can you work at that? Yeah? Uh, let, let me just say two things. Um, one is, I think, I think we need to be convicted and impressed by the, by the immense need of it. Um, there's a passage in Hebrews that um, convicts me often. Um, l- l- let me read it for you. Um, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I think that is, an, that, that is a kind of passage that needs to be like, read every day, and we need to remind one another that if, if we're a church family, and if we really love one another, um, then there is a danger among us to have a sinful, unbelieving heart that will turn us away from the living God, and we can be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And, and the end of that road is destruction. And if we really love one another, then we love one another well enough to talk about the hard things. So, so uh, uh, in the first thing is, it's a challenge to love. Because um, love isn't just about saying nice things, we know that. Um, love is about saying hard things, um, carefully. And the second thing is, and uh, I think Ben knows that, um, we at, at Kingfisher work together through a book called Side by Side, um, which is it's a book which is all about how, in a church community, everybody is needy and everyone is needed. Um, and it has some immensely practical stuff, which I'd recommend to you. I'm going to do a book review. Um, to, to help us to be, to be able to get alongside one another in our need and with our need um, to talk about the hard things of life, because that ultimately is how we love one another. And I, I guess you have more questions about that than speak to your pastor. <laughs> Any, anything else anyone would like to ask? Yeah. Um, you used an interesting turn of phrase, spiritual adultery. Would you mind just expounding on what that mm. is uh, and uh, how can you get against it? Okay, um, yeah, so, so I guess that, that kind of comes from the passage in Jeremiah that I was speaking about. Uh, so Jeremiah chapter 3 where uh, the Lord um, likens his relationship with his people to a marriage, but he says because his people have been faithful, they've committed adulteries, and what that means is they've gone after other gods. So, so, so I guess God designs us uh, to be the, he designs us for him to be the most important place in our life. And when we replace him with other things, then we're committing idolatry, we're going after other gods. When we, when we look to other things to give us what only God can provide, then we're committing spiritual adultery. Does, does that make sense? So spiritual adultery is the same thing as idolatry. Idolatry, sin, yeah. yeah. It's a, I guess it's applying the, the language of marriage to our sin. I didn't repeat that question. Is that? <laughs> That's okay. Thanks, Ben. I'll finish another question. Yeah, go on. Um, Thank you. The, the contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus is something we see often because before Jesus came, um, they were ruled by, they were 
under the law, and then when Jesus came, we're under the spirit, if you like. So how do you think we should um, approach and apply the laws that are in the Old Testament in the New World when we are no longer under the law? Okay, yeah, thank you. That's a helpful question. So, so the question is, we see, often see the Pharisees um, in conflict with Jesus um, and how uh, the Pharisees, until, or, or everyone, until Jesus came, was under the law. When Jesus comes, we're now under the Spirit. So how do we apply and understand the Old Testament law as Christians today? Yeah, is that the question? Um, there's, um, uh, the, there's a very long answer and there's a short answer. I'll give you the short answer. Um, I, think, I think it's very helpful. Um, Christians over the, over the centuries really have, have wrestled with this question and thought about it. And I think one of the kind of, what I find to be one of the most helpful summaries of how we deal with that is, is to say we, we, we read the law for three reasons. Uh, one, we, we read the law um, to see what God's like. The law reveals God's character so we get to know God better. Um, secondly, we, uh, as we read the law, um, we see what we're like. Um, and as we see what we're like, as we see how um, we fail to meet God's standard, it leads us to Christ. It, it's like takes us by the hand and leads us to Christ. Um, but actually, I think the primary reason is that the law helps us to live in response to God's love and grace. Um, so uh, the, the, the book of Deuteronomy, which, which we mentioned today, is, is an immense um, book in the Bible. Um, it it describes how God has rescued his people by grace from Egypt, how he's poured out his love on them, how he's committed to them in a covenant relationship, a marriage-type relationship. Um, and the whole message is um, God says to people, I've loved you, I've cared for you, I've rescued you, I've saved you, now you just need to love me in return. Not, not love me in a way to earn my love, because you've already got my love. Not in a way to earn my grace, because you've already got my grace. Um, this is what it means to live under my love, to live in my love. Um, and, and to read the law like that. And that now means we need to do a bit of work for kind of applying the context and the situations through Christ into today. Um, but I, I think that's a very helpful way to read. Uh, anything else before we wrap it up? <laughs>